Welcome, welcome, welcome to Demented Darkness. This is our Halloween extravaganza. I hope you enjoy. Today I have selected a series of classic tales by some of our favorite well-known horror writers of all time. Up first, we will have a selection from the great one himself, Edgar Allan Poe. But we're not going to be doing the Raven like everyone else does. We are going to do Tell Tale Heart. The Telltale Heart. True. Nervous. Very, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease has sharpened my senses. Not destroyed. Not dulled. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how calmly I tell you the whole story. It's impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain. But once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object? There was none. Passion? There was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. One of his eyes resembled that of a vulture. A pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so, by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of that eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded. With what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation, I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it. Oh, so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head... I put in a darkened lantern, all closed, closed so that no light shone out. And then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my head, my whole head, in the opening. 
so far that I could see him as he lay on his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously. Oh, so cautiously. Cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights. Every night, just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work. For it was not the old man who vexed me so, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have been very profound old man indeed to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than mine did. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph to think that there I was, opening the door, little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. Now you may think that this I drew back at, but no, his room was as black as pitch, with the thick darkness, for the shutters were fastened to closed, through fear of robbers, and so I knew, I knew he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on, steadily, steadily. I had my head in and was about to open the lantern when I, my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening and the old man sprang up in bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quiet and still and said nothing. For a whole hour, I did not move a muscle. And in the meantime, I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in bed, listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently, I heard a slight groan, 
and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief. Oh, no. It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo. The terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt, and I pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise. When he had turned in the bed, his fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crawling across the floor. Or, it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he has been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions. But he had found all in vain. All in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very, very patiently, without hearing him lie down. I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a single dim ray, like the thread of a spider, shot from out the crevice and fell upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. I, I, I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person. For I had directed the ray as if by instinct, precisely upon the damned spot. And now, have I not told you what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the senses? Now say I, there came to my ears a lull, dull, quick, sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well. It was the beating of the old man's heart. Tum, tum, 
It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into action. But even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say louder, every moment. Do you mark me well? I've told you that I am nervous, so I am. And now, the dread hour of night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet for some minutes longer I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder and louder. I thought the heart must burst. And now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, only once. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed cover over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for so many minutes, the heart beat. on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length, it slowed and ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my heart hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes there was no pulsation he was stone dead his eye would trouble me no more if you still think me mad you will think so no longer when i describe the wise precautions i took with the concealment of the body the night waned and i worked hastily but in silence First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head, and then each arm, and each leg. Then I took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber, and deposited it all between the scantlings. Then I replaced the boards so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his evil eye, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot whatsoever. I had been far too wary for that. A tub had caught all. <laughs> when I had met an end to these labors, it was four o'clock. 
still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart. For what had I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled, for what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search. Search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wishing them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definitiveness until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound. Much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently. But the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gesticulations. But the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides and as if excited to fury the observations of the men. But the noise steadily increased. Boom, 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 boom. Oh, God, what could I do? I foamed. I raved. I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards. 
but the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder and louder and louder. And still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard it not? Almighty God! No, no, they heard. They suspected. They knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now, again, hark, louder, boom, boom, louder, boom, boom, louder, boom, boom, louder. Villains, I shrieked. Dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here is the beating of his hideous heart. Written by Edgar Allan Poe, January 1843. I hope you enjoyed that first chilling tale for this Halloween night. We're going to take a quick break here, and we will be back with our next story. Start the movie. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. One of his eyes resembled that of a vulture. A pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so, by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and thus rid myself of the eye forever. So I'm heading door to door with my grandmother's cookie jar. I'm selling cookies, 12 for a dollar. I ring the doorbell, nobody wants any. I'll resort to going cheap a two for a penny. Anybody, everybody, they hate me. I can tell when they spit and degrade me. It's only one house left, the last on the block. Old man Willie on the hilltop. I ring the doorbell, the door creeps I'm a 
Anyways, without any further ado, let's get back to our next story. Not really a story, more of a sermon from a church. Okay, dear listener. What's more quintessential for Halloween than witches? Furthermore, let's travel back in time. How about to July 8th, 1741, in Enfield, Connecticut? An overzealous preacher named Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now you have to remember this was right in the height of when the Puritans were scared and, you know, they thought they were seeing witches around every corner. I mean, 1741, we weren't even a country. This was, this was colonial Europe, or colonial America. Well, anyway, I remember the first time I ever read this particular uh, 
story, I call it, because it really is a story. Um, I was, I don't know, maybe a freshman in high school, and it literally scared the shit out of me. So, without any further ado, I give you Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by the Reverend Jonathan Edwards, a sermon preached at Enfield, Connecticut, July 8th, 1741. At a time of great awakenings and attended with remarkable impressions on the many hearers. Their foot shall slide in due time. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. In this verse is threatened the vengeance of God upon the wicked, unbelieving Israelites who were God's visible people and who lived under the means of grace, but who, notwithstanding all God's wonderful works towards them, remained as void of counsel, having no understanding in them. Under all cultivations of heaven, they brought forth bitter, poisonous fruit. As in the two verses next preceding the text, the expression I have chosen for my text, their foot shall slide in due time, seems to imply the following things relating to the punishment and destruction to which these wicked Israelites were exposed. That they were always exposed to destruction as one that stands or walks in slippery places is always exposed to fall. This implied in the manner of their destruction coming upon them, being represented by their foot sliding, the same is expressed. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. Psalm 73, verse 18. Two, it implies that they were exposed to sudden, unexpected destruction. As he walks in slippery places, is it every moment liable to fall? He cannot foresee the moment, whether he shall stand or fall the next. And when he does fall, he falls at once without warning, which is also expressed in, Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou casteth them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? Another thing implied is that they are liable to fall of themselves without being thrown down by the hand of another. As he that stands or walks on slippery ground needs nothing but his own weight to throw him down. That the reason why they are not fallen already and do not fall now is only that God's appointed time has not come for them. For it is said that when the due time or appointed time comes, their foot shall slide, and they shall be left to fall, as they are inclined by their own weight. God will not hold them up in these slippery places any longer, but will let them go. And then, at that very instant, they shall fall into destruction, as he stands on such slippery, declining ground. On the edge of a pit, he cannot stand alone. When he is let go, he immediately falls and is lost. 
The observation from the words that I would now insist upon is this. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. By the mere pleasure of God, I mean his sovereign pleasure, his arbitrary will, his restrained by no obligation, hindered by no manner of difficulty, any more than if nothing else but God's mere will had in the last degree or in any respect whatsoever had any hand in the preservation of wicked men one moment. The truth of this observation may appear by the following considerations. There is no want of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. Men's hands cannot be strong when God rises up. The strongest have no power to resist him, nor can deliver out of his hands. He is not only able to cast wicked men into hell, but he can most easily do it. Sometimes an earthly prince meets with a great deal of difficulty to subdue a rebel who has found means to fortify himself and has made himself strong by the numbers of his followers. But it is not so with God. There is no fortress that is any defense from the powers of God. Though hand join in hand, and vast multitudes of God's enemies combine and associate themselves, they are easily broken pieces. They are as great heaps of light chaff before the wind, or large quantities of dry stubble before devouring flames. We find it easy to tread on and crush a worm that we see crawling on the earth, so it is easy for us to cut or singe a slender thread that anything hangs by. Thus easily is it for God, when he pleases, to cast his enemies down to hell. What are we that we should think to stand before him, at whose rebuke the earth trembles, and before whom the rocks are thrown down? Two. The wicked deserve to be cast into hell. So that divine justice never stands in the way, it makes no objection against God's using his power at any moment to destroy them. Yea, on the contrary, justice calls aloud for an infinite punishment of their sins. Divine justice says of the tree that brings forth such grapes of Sodom, cut it down. Why cumbereth it to the ground? Luke chapter 13, verse 7. The sword of divine justice is every moment brandished over their heads, and it is nothing but the hand of arbitrary mercy. God's mere will, that's all that holds it back. They are already under a sentence of condemnation to hell. They do not only justly deserve to be cast down thither, but the sentence of the law of God, that eternal and immutable rule of righteousness that God has fixed between him and mankind is gone out against them and stands against them, for they are bound over already to hell. He that believeth not is condemned already. So that every unconverted man 
properly belongs to hell. That is his place. From thence he is. Ye are from beneath, and thither is he bound. It is the place that justice and God's word and the sentence of his unchangeable law assigned to him. They are now the objects of that very same anger and wrath of God that is expressed in the torments of hell. And the reason they do not go down to hell at each moment is not because God, in whose power they are, it is not then very angry with them as he is with many miserable creatures now tormented in hell, who there feel and bear fierceness of his wrath. Yea, God is a great deal more angry with great numbers that are now on earth. Yea, doubtless, with many that are now in his congregation. It may be our days that he is with many of those who are now in the flames of fiery hell so that it is not because God is unmindful of their wickedness and does not resent it, that he does not let loose his hand and cut them off. God is not altogether such and one as themselves, although they might imagine him to be so. The wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation does not slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot ready to receive them. The flames do not rage now and glow. The glittering sword is wet and the held over them. The pit hath opened its mouth under them. The devil stands ready to fall upon them and seize them as his own. At what moment shall God permit him? They belong to him. He has their souls in his possession and under his dominion. The scripture represents them as his goods. The devil watch, the devils watch them. They are ever by them at their right hand. They stand waiting for them like greedy, hungry lions that see their prey and expect to have it, but are for the present kept back. If God should withdraw his hand, by which they are restrained, they would in one moment fly upon their poor souls. The old serpent is gaping for them. Hell opens its mouth wide to receive them. And if God should permit it, they would hastily be swallowed up and lost. There are in souls of wicked men those hellish principles reigning that would presently kindle and flame out into hellfire. If it were not for God's restraints, there is laid in the very nature of carnal men a foundation for the torments of hell. There are those corrupt principles in reigning power in them and in full possession of them that are seeds of hellfire. These principles are active and powerful, exceedingly violent in their nature, and if it were not for the restraining hand of God upon them, they would soon break out. They would flame out after the same manner as the same corruptions. The same enmity does, does in the hearts of damned souls 
would beget the same torments as they do in them. The souls of the wicked are in Scripture compared to troubled seas. For the present, God restrains their wickedness. By his mighty power, he does the raging waves of the troubled sea, saying, Hitherto shall thou come, but no further. But if God should withdraw that restraining hand, it would soon carry all before it. Sin is the ruin and misery of the soul. It is destructive in its nature, and if God should leave without restraint, there would need nothing else to make the soul perfectly miserable. The corruption of the heart of man is immoderate and boundless with its fury. And while wicked men live here, it's like fire pent up by God's restraints, whereas if it were let loose, it would set fire the course of nature. And as the hearts now sink of sin, so if sin was not restrained, it would immediately turn the soul into a fiery oven or furnace, and fire and brimstone would reign supreme. Now it is no security to wicked men for one moment that there is no visible means of death at hand. It is no security to a natural man that he is now in health, and that he does not see which way he should now immediately go out of the world by any accident, and that there is no visible danger in any respect in his circumstances. The manifold and continual experiences of all the world in all the ages shows this is no evidence, that a man is not very on the very brink of eternity and the next step will not be into another world. The unseen, unthought-of ways and means of persons going suddenly out of the world are innumerable and inconceivable. Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotten covering, and there are innumerable places in this covering so weak they will not bear their weight. And these places are not seen. The arrows of death fly unseen at noonday. The sharpest sight cannot discern them. God has so many different unsearchable ways of taking wicked men out of the world and sending them to hell that there's nothing to make it appear that God had need to be at all the expense of a miracle or go out of the ordinary course of his providence to destroy any wicked man at any moment. All the means that there are of sinners going out of the world are so in God's hands and so universally and absolutely subject to his power and determination that it does not depend at all on the lessons of the mere will of God, whether sinners shall in any moment go to hell. If that means we're never made use of, at all concerned in the case. Natural men's prudence and care preserve their own lives, or the care of others to preserve them. Do not secure them a moment. To this divine providence and universal experience do also bear testimony. There is this clear evidence that men's own wisdom is no security to them from death, 
that if it were otherwise, we should see some difference between the wise and politic men of the world and others with regard to their liableness to early and unexpected death. But how is it, in fact? How dieth the wise man, even as the fool? Okay, I can't take any more of that. But now, imagine you're sitting there. No, probably not even sitting there. Probably standing there in 1741. Listening to this imposing man standing up on a towering pedestal in a thunderous voice telling you that at any moment your God who you put all your faith in could decide to let you fall into the pit of hell. It goes on with more ramblings and more ramblings. But at the end of the story, he's basically saying that God is angry with mankind. And at any second, he could sever his protection of us and then Satan, his minions and the forces of hell will consume everything. Now imagine you're standing there listening to that with your young wife because back then they married young and maybe your one or two children. And this is a time when you thought your neighbor might be a witch. And you've seen monsters around every corner. I don't know. Pretty fucking scary to me. Pretty fucking dark. And this guy considered himself a man of the cloth. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Did this cut the mustard for being a scary story? Shoot me a message on my uh Instagram account at the underscore scary with two R's underscore Jerry with two R's. That's the scary Jerry. And yeah, I know the scary doesn't have two R's in it, but I'm an idiot and I can't spell very well. So deal with it. Anyhow, I'm going to take a minute here and uh, tell you guys to head on over to AOHPmerch.com. Uh, check it out. We got some new stuff. There's uh some Demented Darkness stickers, very, very reasonable pricing. I just bought some myself. Um, also, T-shirts, buy some of Anthony's shirts, buy whatever, you know, check it out. There's a lot of stuff. It's pretty cool. Um, if you get on the website today, there is a T-shirt that is a mugshot T-shirt of uh, Spring Hill Jack, and it is his actual mugshot. So that's a limited time uh, special for the holidays. So uh, that is only going to be available for the next however many hours till midnight tonight. So uh, head on over to AOHPmerch.com and check out what we got. 
If you don't have the funds, which I understand, there is a very easy and cheap way that you can. Uh, actually, it costs you nothing except a few minutes to support the shows and the network. Uh, leave us that coveted five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to it. Go ahead and click that five stars. Um, leave us some kind words. It all helps, and it helps with algorithms and everything. Tell a friend. Tell an enemy. Tell everybody you know. Check it out. Anyhow, with all that being said, we are going to start our last story for the evening, which you might have felt it coming on. We are going to visit the classic Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving. I hope you enjoy. And now, the moment you've all been waiting for. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving. Retold by Ann Collins. One. The Ghost of the Soldier. On the eastern bank of the Great Hudson River in North America, there is a small town. Its name is Terrytown. Once, the town had a different name. Why did it change? This is the reason. Wives often sent their husbands off to market in the town to buy and sell things. Come back quickly, the wives always said. But the husbands never returned home quickly. They stayed or tarried in the town, and they drank beer at the inns there. So people started to call the place Terrytown. About two miles from Terrytown is a little hollow, or valley, between some high hills. A small river runs through this valley. The valley is a very peaceful place. Everyone who goes there soon feels peaceful. They quickly forget their troubles, and everyone who lives there always feels sleepy. Because of this strange, peaceful feeling, the valley is called Sleepy Hollow. Dutch settlers first came to Sleepy Hollow early in the 17th century. They made their homes there. But before the Dutch people came, Native Americans had lived there. These people had believed in many different spirits. Perhaps these spirits made Sleepy Hollow a strange and mysterious place. There was a something very strange about the people who lived in Sleepy Hollow. In the early years of the 19th century, they were as peaceful and sleepy as the valley itself. They believed strongly in God, but they also believed very strongly in ghosts and spirits. They often saw strange things at night. They often heard music in the forest when nobody else was there. There were many stories about ghosts and spirits in Sleepy Hollow and the area near it. The most famous of these stories was about the ghost of a man on a horse. Lots of people saw the man. That is what they said. He rode a huge black stallion as fast as the wind. He was always seen late at night, and there was something even more terrible about him. 
he had no head. So the people who lived in the area called him the Headless Horseman. Many people had seen the Headless Horseman late at night. He rode in Sleepy Hollow, and he also traveled the other roads in the area. He was often seen near a small church a few miles from the valley. Who was this Headless Horseman? Nobody really knew. But some people told a story about him. The Headless Horseman is the ghost of a soldier, they said. The soldier was killed in the war between Britain and the American colony. There was a terrible battle in this area. In this battle, the soldier's head was shot clean off by a cannonball from a British gun. His body was taken to a little church near the battlefield, these people continued. It was buried in the graveyard next to the church, but his head still lies somewhere on the battlefield, and every night... The horseman rides back to the battlefield to look for his head, but he never finds it. And he always has to return to the graveyard before dawn. All ghosts have to go back to their graves before the daylight comes, and the headless horseman is always in a hurry because he's always late. That's why he rides so fast. Part 2. The Schoolmaster The schoolmaster of Sleepy Hollow was a man named Ichabod Crane. His name was a good one because he looked like the kind of bird which is called a crane. He was very tall and thin with narrow shoulders and long arms and legs. His head was small and very flat on top. He had huge ears, large green eyes, and a very long nose. He was not handsome at all. Ichabod's clothes did not fit him well. They were loose, and they flapped in the wind. So when he walked, the schoolmaster looked very strange. The school was a low building with one large room, and Ichabod was the only teacher there. The schoolhouse stood by itself at the bottom of the valley. The hills around it were covered with trees. A small river ran near the schoolhouse. On summer days, the windows of the schoolhouse were always open. Anyone who passed could hear Ichabod's pupils saying their lessons in sleepy voices. The lessons had finished for the day. Ichabod often went home with one of the children. Some of the boys and girls had pretty older sisters. Ichabod liked young, pretty women. And some of his pupils had mothers who were good cooks. Ichabod liked to go home with these children most of all. Ichabod was very thin, but he ate a huge amount of food. He loved talking about food, and he loved thinking about food. Most of all, he loved eating it. Ichabod loved food, but he loved singing too. He taught a group of young people to sing psalms, which are religious songs. Once a week, the group met for psalm singing lessons. And every Sunday, Ichabod stood with his pupils in the church in the valley and sang psalms with them. Ichabod had a good life. He did not earn very much money from teaching. He could not buy a house of his own. So he stayed at the house of different farmers in the area. He stayed with each farmer for a week. Each week, the farmer gave the schoolmaster a bed to sleep in and food to eat and Ichabod helped the farmers with their work on their farms. He mended fences. He took water to the horses. 
he cut wood for the farmers' fires. Sometimes he helped the farmers' wives look after the children. The farmers' wives were always happy to see Ichabod. They often invited him to eat. They made delicious cakes for him. The young women in the area liked Ichabod, too. Sometimes he took walks with them or read them funny stories. They smiled at him whenever they met him. All the people of Sleepy Hollow respected Ichabod Crane because he was a schoolmaster. He was clever. He worked with his mind, not with his hands. He's a very intelligent man, everyone said. Most of the people in the valley could not read or write, but Ichabod could read. So he was an important man in the area. Ichabod Crane believed in God, but he also believed very strongly in ghosts and spirits. On summer evenings, after lessons had finished, he often lay on the grass beside the small river. He lay on the warm grass and read his favorite book. It was a book about ghosts. Ichabod loved the stories in the books, but they frightened him. He believed everything that he read in them. He often read the book until the sky was dark. Then he could no longer see the pages, so he stopped reading. But then he had to walk back in the dark to the farmhouse where he was staying. A forest covered a large part of the area. Often Ichabod had to walk through the forest to go to the farmhouse. These walks in the dark were terrible for him. He saw ghosts and spirits all around him. The branches of the trees looked like ghostly hands, and they were all trying to grab him. And there were strange noises in the forest at night. They were really the noises of animals and birds in the trees, but to Ichabod, they were the sounds of evil spirits. Sometimes his heart beat fast with fear, and his legs would not move. This is terrible, he thought. Whenever this happened, there are evil spirits here. They're hiding in the trees, and they want to take me away with them. What can I do? I shall sing a psalm. Then the spirits won't be able to hurt me. So Ichabod often sang a psalm as he walked through the dark forest. I am afraid of no ghosts or evil spirits of the night. God will always lead me from the darkness to the light. The people of Sleepy Hollow often sat outside their doors of their houses in the evenings. They heard the sound of Ichabod's strange high voice as he passed their homes. What's that strange noise, they asked each other. Is it a spirit? Oh no, it's only Ichabod Crane. He's singing as he walks home through the forest. On winter evenings, Ichabod sometimes sat with the old women of Sleepy Hollow. He sat by their kitchen fires with them, eating apples and listening to their wonderful ghost stories. Ichabod's favorite ghost stories were about the Headless Horseman. But when he had to walk home through the forest in the dark winter night, he tried to forget about the stories. He was even more frightened than in summer. Does the terrible horseman only travel on the roads, he asked himself? Or does he haunt the forest too? On those dark nights, Ichabod saw the horseman in every shadow. He heard the noise of the huge black horse in every sound. Part 3. Ichabod and Katrina One day, a new pupil joined Ichabod's group of psalm singers. 
Her name was Katrina Van Tassel, and she was the daughter, daughter of Baltus Van Tassel, an old farmer. Baltus Van Tassel's farm was a few miles from Sleepy Hollow. Katrina was 18 years old, and she was very beautiful. She had golden blonde hair, and she liked wearing pretty clothes. All of the young men in the area admired Katrina, and Katrina knew this. She enjoyed this admiration very much. Katrina is a very pretty girl, said the people of the area. Her skirts are too short now, but one day she will be a good wife for somebody. Her husband will be a very lucky man. He will marry Katrina, and he'll get her father's farm, too. Katrina was Baltus Van Tassel's only child. She had no brothers or sisters. So when her parents died, Katrina was going to inherit the farm. The land and everything on it was going to be hers. One day, she was going to be rich. Ichabod Crane liked women, but when he first met Katrina, he forgot all about the other women. Soon after he met Katrina, Ichabod visited the Van Tassel's farmhouse. It stood in a wide grassy place on the bank of the Hudson River. As Ichabod rode up to the farmhouse, he saw cows, geese, ducks, turkeys, and hens. They all looked very fat and healthy. At once, Ichabod began to feel hungry. He thought about huge and wonderful dinners. Those chickens will taste delicious when they are cooked, he thought. And these geese and turkeys will be wonderful in pies. And the ducks will be very good with onions. Then Ichabod looked at all the land which belonged to the farm. He saw the fields of golden corn. He saw hundreds of fruit trees, their branches covered with ripe fruit. And when Ichabod saw all of these things, he started dreaming about his future life. This place is perfect, he said to himself. If I marry Katrina, I'll have an easy life. I won't have to work. There'll be lots of delicious food to eat all the time. Katrina will take good care of me, and I'll be very comfortable with her and our children. Perhaps we'll sell the farm one day, he thought. We'll get a lot of money, and we'll travel to another part of America. Ichabod was happy, and when he entered the farmhouse, he felt even happier. The kitchen was large, warm, and comfortable. There was a wonderful smell of food. There were large baskets full of fruits and vegetables ready for cooking. In the living room, the fine wooden furniture shone in the sunlight. The cupboards were full of silver plates and china dishes. From that time, Ichabod thought day and night about Katrina. I must marry her, he said to himself. There's a wonderful life waiting for me on that farm. Part 4. Brown Bones But there was a problem for Ichabod. All the young men from the area admired Katrina. And there was one young man who admired her very much. He wanted to marry her too. This man's name was Brown Bones. Brown Bones was very different from Ichabod. He was tall and handsome. His body was big and strong, and he had short, black, curly hair. He was a very brave young man, and he was an excellent horse rider. He often rode in horse races, and he always won them. 
Brom Bones was not afraid of anybody or anything. He was the leader of a group of young men. These young men admired Brom, and they rode with him everywhere. Sometimes the people of the area heard the sound of horses on the road late at night. That's Brom Bones and his friends, they said to each other. Brom Bones enjoyed playing tricks on people. He was not a bad man, but he liked to have fun. Brom Bones often went to Baltus Van Tassel's farm to see Katrina when other young men from the area saw Brom's horse outside the Van Tassel's farmhouse. They smiled sadly. Now Katrina won't speak to us, they said. Brom will win her love easily, and we don't want to fight with Brom. <coughs> so everybody else stopped trying to win Katrina's love. Everybody except Ichabod Crane. Ichabod was not worried about Brom Bones and his visits to Katrina. He started to visit her himself. And when the schoolmaster came to the house, Katrina's father smoked his pipe happily. Her mother sang while she did her work. They both smiled when Ichabod took walks with Katrina or when he sat and talked with her outside the house. All the Van Tassels were happy. But when Brom Bones heard about Ichabod's visits to Katrina, he was not happy. Not at all. What? he shouted. Is that ugly schoolmaster visiting Katrina? I'll fight him. I'll knock him down and put him on a shelf in his own schoolhouse. But Ichabod did not want to fight Brom. Brom was very strong and he could win any fight easily. Ichabod knew that. So the schoolmaster stayed away from Brom. This made Brom even angrier. I can't fight him with my hands because he won't come near me, Brom said. So I'll try another way of fighting him. He started playing tricks on the schoolmaster. First, Brom and his friends got into Ichabod's schoolhouse one night. They moved all the furniture around. Ichabod was very frightened the next day. An evil spirit did this, he said. Next, Brom taught his dog to make a terrible noise. Then he waited outside the schoolhouse with the animal. Whenever Ichabod sang, the dog made the terrible noise. All Ichabod's pupils laughed. One fine autumn afternoon, Ichabod was in the schoolhouse with his pupils. Suddenly, there was a knock at the door. When Ichabod opened it, he saw one of Baltus Fentassel's servants outside. You, sir, are invited to a party tonight at Van Tassel Farm, said the servant. Will you come? Oh, yes, said Ichabod. He was very happy and excited. He also felt very important. Katrina's parents had asked him to the party. So they really did like him. They wanted him to marry their daughter. That was good. And he was going to see Katrina at the party. He sent his pupils home an hour early that day. They were very surprised by this. It had never happened before. Part 5. The Party Ichabod spent a long time getting ready for the party. He had an old black suit of clothes. It was his only suit. He brushed it carefully. When Ichabod looked at himself in the mirror, he was very pleased. How handsome I look, he thought. Tonight I will win Katrina's love.
I am sure of that. But I must have a fine horse to ride to the party. Where could I get one? Perhaps I can borrow a horse from Hans Van Ripper. Hans Van Ripper owned the farm where Ichabod was staying this week. Ichabod asked to borrow a horse from him. The farmer decided to play a trick on the schoolmaster. Yes, you can borrow one of my horses, Ichabod, he said. I'll lend you my best one. But when Ichabod saw the horse, he was very surprised. It was old and thin and had only one eye. Is this your best horse, he asked the farmer. Yes, replied Hans Van Ripper. He's very strong and he runs fast as a bullet from a gun. His name is Gunpowder. Gunpowder did run fast, but he also had a very bad temper. Hans Van Ripper did not tell Ichabod about this. He pointed, this, he pointed to the saddle on the horse's back. This is my best saddle, the farmer said. Please take care of it. Ichabod climbed onto the expensive saddle, and he and Gunpowder started their journey to the Van Tassel's party. Ichabod and the horse were both very thin, and they looked very strange together. Ichabod was not a good horse rider. He sat uncomfortably on Gunpowder's back. As he rode, he moved his long, thin arms up and down like a bird's wings. His loose black cloak flapped in the wind. He looked like a huge black bird. It was a beautiful autumn afternoon. The leaves on the trees were red and gold. As Ichabod rode along, he heard the sounds of birds singing. He rode through the fields of golden corn and fields of apple trees. He began to feel hungry. He began to think about cakes and pies. At last, Ichabod arrived at the Van Tassel's farmhouse. The party had already started, and many of the farmers from the area were there with their families. Everybody was dressed in their best clothes. Their clothes were very colorful and bright. The most beautiful girl at the party was Katrina. Everybody admired her. She was laughing and talking to the guests. Ichabod looked at her and he smiled. But soon the schoolmaster had an unpleasant surprise. Brown Bones was also at the party. He had come on his big black horse, Daredevil. Brown was standing in the middle of the group of his friends. He was telling stories in a loud voice. Everybody was laughing at his stories. Oh no, thought Ichabod. Why is that man here? When Brown Bones saw Ichabod, his face became angry. Ichabod hurried away into the dining room. And when he entered that room, he forgot about Brown Bones at once. He even forgot about Katrina. In the dining room was a great table, and the great table was covered with all kinds of wonderful food. There were dishes of cooked meats. There were places of cakes and pies. Ichabod started eating at once. As he ate, he looked around the room and smiled. One day, this will all be mine, he thought. At that moment, Katrina's father came towards him. Are you enjoying the party, Ichabod? Van Tassel asked. Please, eat as much as you want. We have plenty of everything. After the meal, nearly everyone danced. Ichabod liked dancing very much. When he danced, he moved his arms and legs very quickly. He looked very strange, but he did not know this. I am a very good dancer, 
he told himself. Ichabod started dancing with Katrina. Soon, everybody in the room was staring at them. Some people began to laugh. How strange Ichabod looks, they said to each other. Why does he dance in that way? Brown Bones did not dance. He sat by himself in a corner, staring angrily at Katrina. Brahm is jealous because Katrina is dancing with me, thought Ichabod. That's good. After the dancing had finished, Ichabod felt tired. He joined a group of people by the fire. They were telling stories to each other. Brown Bones was one of the group. At first, the stories were about the war between Britain and its American colony. But then people started to tell ghost stories. Ichabod listened carefully. He was always very interested in ghost stories. Several people from Sleepy Hollow were at the party. They started talking about the Headless Horseman. The horseman is riding again, said one man. Nobody has seen him for a long time. But this month, several people have seen him. Every night now, he rides from the graveyard and doesn't come back until just before dawn. Yes, that's right, said another man. And did you hear about the poor old farmer Brewer? He met the headless horseman on the road. The horseman pulled Brewer up onto his terrible black horse and rode away with him. He rode until he got to the small bridge near the old church. Then the horseman threw Farmer Brewer into the river and he rode away, making a noise like thunder. Suddenly, Brown Bones smoked. I've met the horseman too, he said, but I wasn't afraid of him. I'm a better horse rider than he is. Did you really meet him? Somebody asked excitedly. How did you meet him? Tell us what happened. I met him on the road one night, replied Bones. I asked him to race with me. So we raced our horses to the old church, but my horse Daredevil was faster than his horse. I run the, won the race easily. And when we got to the bridge near the church, the horseman disappeared in a flash of fire. You were very brave, said someone. Ichabod listened to Brownbone's story. Then he himself told a story about evil spirits in the forest. But it was not as interesting as Brown's story, and nobody said, You were very brave, Ichabod. At last the party finished, and it was time to go home. Ichabod went to find Katrina. He wanted to spend a few minutes alone with her. You're looking very beautiful tonight, he told the young woman. May I come to see you tomorrow afternoon? I want to speak to you about something very important. I want to ask you a question. But Katrina did not look very happy or friendly. She did not want to be alone with Ichabod. No, I'm sorry, she said. I won't be at home tomorrow afternoon. Ichabod was surprised. Oh, he said. May I come tomorrow evening, then? No, I won't be home in the evening, either, Katrina replied. Well, can I come the next day? No, I'll be busy all this week, said Katrina. Now, please excuse me. I have to go say goodbye to our other guests. A few minutes later, Ichabod saw Katrina with Brown Bones. They were talking together and laughing quietly. Then Brown Bones held Katrina's hand and kissed it. Katrina was looking very pleased and happy. What is happening? Ichabod asked himself. 
Does Katrina really like brown bones more than me? That's not possible. I can't believe it. Perhaps she wants to make me jealous. Ichabod did not say goodbye to Katrina. He left the party quickly. He felt very sad and he felt very angry too. He went to the stable, the place where the horses were kept, and he found gunpowder. Gunpowder was asleep. But Ichabod kicked the horse and it quickly woke up. Ichabod climbed onto Gunpowder's back and he rode slowly away. Part 6. A Terrible Race It was almost midnight. The moon was shining brightly. Ichabod rode Gunpowder slowly along the side of some high hills. Below him, on the other side of the road, he could see Terrytown on the bank of the wide, dark Hudson River. He could hear the song of a dark dog barking on the other side of the river, but the sound was very far away, like sound in a dream. As he rode along, the schoolmaster remembered the ghost stories that people had told at the Van Tassel's party. Suddenly, a cloud covered the moon. Ichabod felt lonely and afraid. In front of him, a huge tree stood by the side of the road. There is a very sad story about this tree. During the war between Britain and the American colony, a British soldier had hidden in this tree. His name was Major Andre. The man was a spy, and he was hiding from some American soldiers. He was later captured and killed. Now the people of, area, of the area called the tree, Major Andre's tree. The tree is haunted by Major Andre's ghost, a lot of people said. Ichabod remembered the story, and his heart began to beat fast. He was afraid. He did not want to pass Major Andre's tree, but there was no other way for him to get home, so he began to sing loudly. God will lead me safely around this terrible tree. No ghost spirit is going to frighten me. Suddenly, he stopped singing. He had heard a noise. What was that? He asked himself. He looked up at the tree. Was something white hanging in it? Something white and terrible? Then he looked again. No, there was only a white mark on one of the branches. I'm dreaming, he told himself. That noise was only the sound of the wind. Ichabod passed the tree safely. But there was another danger. This danger was more terrible than the tree. There was a forest on one side of the road, and beyond the forest, there was a bridge over a little river. The American soldiers had captured Major Andre on this bridge. Sometime Major Andre's ghost haunts the bridge at night, people said. Ichabod wanted to ride quickly across the bridge. His heart was beating faster and faster. He kicked gunpowder with both his feet. Come on, you stupid old horse, he said. Move faster. But Gunpowder had a bad temper. He was not feeling happy. He did not want to cross the bridge. He stopped walking forwards. Instead, he turned off the road and into the forest. He ran into the forest for a few minutes. Then he stopped very suddenly. Ichabod was not a good rider and nearly fell off Gunpowder's back. Move, you stupid animal, the schoolmaster shouted. 
He shouted at the horse, and he kicked it again and again, but gunpowder did not move. The horse was looking some, at something in the forest. Ichabod looked too. His mouth became dry with his mouth became dry with fear. A huge black shape was standing in front of him. What was it? Was it a ghost? The hair on Ichabod's head stood up. His body shook. He wanted to escape, but the horse would not move. Who, who, who are you? He whispered. The thing did not answer. Who are you? Ichabod asked again. Still no answer. Ichabod began to sing loudly. No evil thing can hurt me. Suddenly the thing moved. It moved out of the forest, and now it was in the middle of the road. Ichabod could see it more clearly. It had the shape of a large man on a huge black stallion. Then at last Gunpowder decided to move. He ran back to the road. The horse ran towards the bridge. The strange horseman waited. He did not move or speak. But when Gunpowder and Ichabod had passed him, he started to move. He began to follow them. In a moment, he was beside them. They crossed the bridge together. As Ichabod rode along, the horseman rode beside him. Then Ichabod rode quickly. The horse rode quickly. When Ichabod rode slowly, the horse rode slowly. He never left Ichabod's side. It was like a terrible race. Ichabod and the horseman rode up a hill. Suddenly the horseman was in front. But at the top of the hill, he stopped his horse and waited. Now Ichabod could see the horseman's shape very clearly against the dark blue sky. The horseman had no head. He was carrying his head on his saddle pummel. Now Ichabod was really terrified. He was very, very frightened. He rode away as fast as he could, but again the headless horseman followed him. At last they reached the place where the small road turned down into Sleepy Hollow. Ichabod tried to make Gunpowder turn down into the valley. He kicked the horse again and again, but Gunpowder would not turn. He ran past the road that went down to Sleepy Hollow. You stupid horse! shouted Ichabod. We're going the wrong way! Ichabod could hear the sound of the headless horseman behind him. The horseman was very close. Suddenly, Gunpowder started to run faster. That was good. But it was very difficult for Ichabod to stay on the horse's back. And at the moment, the saddle broke and it fell away from the horse. Now Ichabod had to ride without a saddle, but somehow he held on to the horse's neck. That was, Van, that was Hans Van Ripper's best saddle, Ichabod thought. He'll be very angry with me, but I can't worry about that now. I must escape this terrible headless horseman. The terrible race went on. Suddenly, through an opening between the trees, Ichabod saw the walls of a building. The building was near the road. Its walls were white in the moonlight. It was an old church. That's the church where the horseman's body is buried, thought Ichabod. Just in front of the church, the road crossed a bridge over the river. Ichabod remembered the stories he had heard in the Van Tassel's party. The horseman left brown bones at the bridge, the schoolmaster thought. He left Farmer Brower there, too. 
So if I can reach the bridge, I'll be safe. The horseman can't pass the bridge near the church. He'll leave me and he'll go back to the graveyard. Ichabod kicked gunpowder again. Gunpowder ran forward across the bridge. And after a moment, they had reached the other side. Was the horseman still beside him? Ichabod turned around. He saw the headless horseman standing up on his horse. He had lifted his arm in the air and was going to throw his head. Ichabod screamed something at him. It made a terrible soft sound. The schoolmaster fell off the horse and lay on the ground. As he lay there, the headless horseman passed him by, riding fast as the wind. Part 7. What Happened to Ichabod? The next morning, Gunpowder was found without his saddle. The horse was quietly eating grass in a field near, near Hans Van Ripper's farm. But there was no news of Ichabod Crane. Ichabod's pupils waited at the schoolhouse all morning, but the schoolmaster did not come. The boys and girls were happy to miss their lessons. They ate apples and they played in the grass near the river. By the afternoon, Hans Van Ripper began to worry about Ichabod. What has happened to him, he asked himself, and where's my saddle? Hans Van Ripper went to find someone from the village. The schoolmaster has disappeared, he told them. We must try to find him. The men looked for Ichabod for a long time, but they could not find him. At last, they went to the old church by the bridge. They found some marks on the road. They were marks made by two horses. The marks continued to cross the bridge, and then they disappeared in the grass. Look, said one of the men suddenly, there's the schoolmaster's hat. Ichabod's hat was on the road near the bridge. Beside the hat was a very large, soft pumpkin. Big, round, yellow fruit about the size of a man's head. It was broken. The water in the river was a very black and deep was very black and deep near the bridge. Hans Van Ripper looked at it sadly. I Ichabod couldn't swim. Perhaps he fell off my horse and drowned in the deep water. We'll look for his body in the river. But why is that pumpkin here? It's very strange. The men looked in the river, but they could not find Ichabod. At last, they all went home. Later in the day, Hans Van Ripper searched through Ichabod's things. The schoolmaster had owned two shirts, two pairs of shoes, one pair of pants, a very old book of psalms, and a book of stories about ghosts and spirits. Hans also found some poems about Katrina Van Tassel, which Ichabod had written. None of these poems were finished. Hans Van Ripper immediately threw the poems and the book of ghost stories into his kitchen fire. I'm never sending my children to school again, he said to his wife. They don't learn anything good there. They learn about ghosts and spirits, and they learn foolish poetry. Soon everybody in Sleepy Hollow had heard the story of Ichabod Crane's strange disappearance. People could not stop talking about it. What had happened to Ichabod? Groups of people met together at the bridge by the little church. They pointed at the place where the schoolmaster's hat had been found. They remembered the stories about the headless horseman. 
Do you remember old Farmer Brower's story? One of them asked. And Brown Bones' story, too? They both met the headless horseman on this road, but he left them at the bridge. Perhaps Ichabod Crane met the horseman, too. Perhaps the horseman captured him and carried him away. Ichabod had no family, and he did not owe money to anybody. So the people of Sleepy Owl forgot about him quickly. Soon, another teacher came to take Ichabod's place. What really happened to Ichabod Crane? The old women of Sleepy Hollow knew the answer. They were sure of that. They often told the story of Ichabod when they sat by their fires on cold winter evenings. Ichabod Crane was taken by the Headless Horseman, they said. Nobody's seen him since that night, and nobody ever will again. People became a very afraid to go near the bridge by the church. They said, this place is haunted by Ichabod's ghost. His ghost haunts the schoolhouse, too. Some people have heard a voice singing strange songs and psalms there. On quiet summer evenings, people did sometimes hear strange sounds near the schoolhouse. Listen! Ichabod Crane's singing again, they said. Or, or it's only Brown Bones' old dog. But there was another story about Ichabod Crane many years after Ichabod's disappearance. A farmer from Sleepy Hollow went to New York City. When he came back, he brought some very strange news. Ichabod Crane is alive, the farmer said. I saw him in New York. I talked to him. He's a lawyer there. He's earning lots of money. What do you mean, asked another man. Ichabod Crane is dead. He was taken away by the Headless Horseman. No, said the farmer. He left Sleepy Hollow secretly. He told me himself. He was afraid of the Headless Horseman. He was afraid of Han Van Ripper because he lost Han's prized saddle. He'd also, he was also very angry because Katrina Van Tassel had been unkind to him. So he did not want to stay here anymore. Ichabod went to New York and taught in a school there, the farmer went on. But he, went, he wanted to become a lawyer, so he studied law in the evenings. Is this man's story true? The people of the valley asked each other. Is Ichabod Crane really still alive? Perhaps only one person in the area knew the truth about Ichabod. Soon after the schoolmaster disappeared, Brown Bones married Katrina Van Tassel, and they were very, very happy together. They had many children. Whenever people talked about Ichabod Crane, Brown Bones always laughed loudly. He laughed loudest when they talked about the broken pumpkin. Sometimes Brown's friends asked him about the night of the party. Do you know what really happened to the schoolmaster, Brown? They said. Please tell us. But Brown only laughed louder. Did he know what really happened that night? Did he know a secret about Ichabod and the Headless Horseman? Perhaps. Perhaps he did. The end. As I leave you on this Halloween night, I'd like to thank each and every one of you for listening, and I hope you guys have a wonderful evening. Go get into some mischief. Take the kids trick-or-treating. This is a very special time of the year, and this is my favorite time of the year. 
get out there and enjoy it. On a side note, if you have a podcast or an idea for a podcast and would like to join the Anthology of Horror Podcast Network, uh, shoot me a message over on Instagram. That's the underscore scary. That's two R's underscore Jerry, the underscore scary underscore Jerry. Two R's because I'm an idiot and I can't spell very well, but it is what it is. Um, Shoot me a message. We'll talk about it. Um, We're always looking for new talent. It doesn't even have to be a podcast. If you're a YouTuber, a game streamer, whatever you would like, whatever you do to be creative, hit me up. We're always looking for expansions to the network. So make sure you uh, like, follow and subscribe, whatever. I don't know how, what all the kids these days are saying, but give us five stars. Go check out Anthony's show. Sorry. Go check out Anthology of Horror Podcast. Um, also, don't forget to check out Foxhound43 over on Rumble. He's a great guy. Um, very fun guy. He he does playthroughs of games, and he's got a dark and twisted sense of humor. If you like what's going on here, you'd probably be in good company over there. So go check him out. Also, don't forget to check out AOHPmerch.com. Uh, for all your Anthology of Horror Podcast Network merchandise needs, we have Demented Darkness t-shirts, um, Dark Side of the Nerd t-shirts, of course, Anthology of Horror t-shirts and merch. Uh, we just launched some new uh, Demented Darkness stickers, so if you're interested in that, check it out. You can pick them up for like three bucks. Like, go get some, stick them places. And don't forget to tell your friends, loved ones, and enemies all about this show. Um, Check it out. Have them check it out. Uh, We're getting a pretty good uptick in uh, October for listenership. So keep up the good work. I appreciate every one of you guys more than you will ever know. I think I'm going to sign off a little different this time. Because it's Halloween. Remember... Don't let the darkness in. And I'm leaving you with this. <laughs> now gather round while I elucidate on what happens outside when it gets late. Along about midnight, the ghost and bat cheese get together for their nightly jamborees. There's ghosts with horns and saucer eyes, and some with fangs about this size. Some short and fat, some tall and thin, and some don't even bother to wear their skin. I'm telling you, brother, it's a frightful sight to see what goes on in the night. When the spooks have a midnight jamboree, they break it up with fiendish glee. Ghosts are banned, but the one that's cursed is the headless horseman, he's the worst. When he goes a-jogging across the land, holding his noggin in his hand, demons take one look and groan and hit the for parts unknown There's no wrath like the spook that's burned They don't like him and he's really burned Swears through the longest day he's dead He shows them that he can get ahead So
so Close all the windows, lock the doors Unless you're careful, he'll get yours Don't think he'll hesitate a bit Cause he'll clip your top if it'll fit And he likes a little, likes some big Heart in the middle or a wig Black or white or even red The headless horseman needs a head with a hip Hip and a clippity-clop He's out looking for a head to chop So don't stop to figure out a plan You can't reason with the headless man Now if you doubt this tale is so I met that spook just a year ago Now I didn't stop for a second look But I made for the bridge that spans the brook For once you cross that bridge my friends The ghost is gone, his power ends so when you're riding home tonight Make for the bridge with all your might You'll meet down in the hollow there He'll need your head, look out, beware With a hip, hip and a clippity-clop He's out looking for a head to chop So don't stop to figure out a plan You can't reason with a head Smile.